Thank you for visiting the YourMindfulCoach.com podcast, now available on Stitcher and iTunes. This is Mark Balser. Today's podcast is a little different. Many of you have asked for something you can listen to while driving into work. And given the first sentence of most of our podcasts has been, close your eyes, that hasn't really been an option. So today I'm offering a talk on doubt. I hope you'll find it interesting and relatable. I've found the practice of mindfulness to be especially helpful when working with doubt and uncertainty in my own life. Despite spending much of my time trying to avoid doubt, I've come to appreciate that within doubt lies possibility. While we often associate doubt with anxiety and paralysis and unpleasantness, There are also qualities of insight, care, importance, reality, and growth contained within doubt. So perhaps doubt can be thought of more as a signal to pay attention, a messenger to remind us to investigate what's happening in our experience. There's a short reflection in the middle of the talk, so if you're driving, I'm guessing keeping your eyes open during that section is a good idea. So enjoy. Please also visit us on the web at www.yourmindfulcoach.com or send an email to Mark, that's M-A-R-C, at yourmindfulcoach.com. Thank you. no idea what I'm doing, an exploration of doubt and uncertainty. An old friend of mine came to visit a few days ago while I was sitting in meditation. You have no idea what you're doing, he declared. Strange. I was just sitting there, minding my own business, following my breath, noting distraction and returning. I wasn't really doing anything. But the voice repeated, You have no idea what you are doing. Really, I thought, where did this come from? Of course, it came from inside my mind. A self-critical thought that's one of my top ten tunes of rumination and regret coming up again and again. And before long, I agreed with that sentiment. I have no idea what I'm doing. It was true. Sitting in meditation, I couldn't concentrate at all, kept squirming. And I really hadn't been sitting for nearly as long as I should be each day. How can such a thought crop up, seemingly from out of the blue, but then attach itself and find validations in the circumstances surrounding it? Sure, putting together the documentation for my tax return is confusing. 
don't really have a very good idea of what I'm doing there. Yeah, I'm about to start a teaching job. What do I know about that? There's kids feeling anxiety at school. How in the world am I going to be able to help them with that? I have no idea what I'm doing. Well, I'm still figuring it out myself. It's interesting how the tiniest seed of doubt can spread throughout my experience. Almost 20 years ago, I was fresh off a two-year stint as a telephone customer service representative for a mutual fund company. I had just been promoted to the role of equity analyst, a prize I had coveted and it had been made possible by the bursting of the dot-com bubble and a hiring freeze, which allowed only new positions to be filled internally. So that's how a 800 rep became a guy recommending stocks for a multi-billion dollar mutual fund. It was a thrill, but I had no idea what I was doing. How in the world could I make decisions with so much at stake? So I labored over company after company, always finding a reason not to recommend this investment or that investment. I really wasn't going anywhere. Eventually, I confided in a veteran analyst named Dave at the company. I sheepishly began describing the work I'd been doing and the paralysis that kept me from recommending any stocks. Dave frowned, seeming irritated, and declared, Close the door. I figured he was going to tell me I wasn't cut out for this line of work. But instead, I closed the door lowered his voice almost to a whisper and told me, none of us have any idea what we are doing. <laughs> wow. This must have been what Dorothy felt like when she got a peek behind the wizard's curtain. For me, it was a huge relief. Here I thought I was stumbling alone in the darkness, only to be told we all need night vision glasses. In Dave's words, I found the self-compassion that allowed me to begin taking risks, making decisions, and living freely, knowing that this was a difficult job and there really was no way to achieve certainty. My job was to do my best and let go of the rest. So what do you do? There's a book that I just love called The Great Work of Your Life, A Guide for the Journey to Your True Calling by yoga teacher Stephen Cope. Cope's book frames the exploration of doubt, particularly with respect to self-doubt, by weaving in the story of Krishna, the Hindu god, as he counsels the great warrior Arjuna. Arjuna lying catatonic in the floor of his chariot, preparing for great violence at the outset of war. He just doesn't know what to do. So deep inside the book, Cope, with the help of a monk named Father Beatty, 
lays out an eight-step process for working with this doubt, making it your life's work, and holding a compassionate gentleness as you proceed. So here are the eight steps. First, ask for guidance. This could be just about anything, a personal reflection, a spiritual connection, asking for what you need. The second step, listen for a response. It's really not a cognitive or conceptual process. It's really just allowing an answer to arise, seeing what comes up. Third step, when you get a response, check it out. Test it. Ask friends and mentors and practice yourself. Try it on for size. The fourth step, wait to act. Holy cow, what about charging ahead? We just figured out what to do and tested it. Well, this wait to act to me is really the foundation of mindfulness. Allowing yourself a bit of space between that stimulus or the reason for acting and the action or response itself. Fifth, pray for the courage to take action. Have you ever known what you needed to do but really didn't want to do it? doesn't need to be religious or spiritual, really just an aspiration or intention to give you the courage and willingness to act. Step six, let go of the attempt to eliminate risk from these decisions and actions. Ah, now we're really cooking. You know, the path of least resistance can seem attractive, but is it meaningful? There's some good in taking risks. It's a sign of growth and change and a sign of something that's important to you. How often have you been paralyzed while trying to figure out the least risky path? And what possibilities are foreclosed in the process? Step seven, move forward methodically. Life is an iterative process. You must act to grow, but give yourself time to course correct. See how things are going and use that information to adjust your approach as needed. Knowing that the ultimate outcome just can't be known from the start. And step eight, let go of the outcome. You know what? You can't take it with you. Your circumstances are ever-changing. And today's success might be tomorrow's challenge. So any opportunity to find value in the journey as opposed to the destination is meaningful. So I hope those steps were helpful, but what can we do personally to work with this doubt? To break free of the paralyzing thought, I have no idea what I'm doing. 
Well, I'll propose two options. The first is naming or noting a guided practice, which you can find as a podcast on my website. Simply acknowledging a thought as a thought can have a surprising positive effect. Author Dan Siegel describes the chemical process known as name it to tame it, wherein your prefrontal cortex literally sends soothing, empathetic signals throughout your nervous system just by bringing awareness to a thought. There's even some exciting research on the amygdala, our fear-sensing system, that when we articulate what's scary or worrying us, that process of panic or fight or flight is reduced. It activates our parasympathetic nervous system, the relaxation response that can help you move out of fear and worry. The second approach is to use the power of inquiry, a method my teacher, Jonathan Faust, has shared with me and I found immensely useful. Through this investigation, I asked myself, what is this statement trying to say? What am I believing? And what do I need? So perhaps we can take a few minutes as a reflection Closing your eyes if you'd like. Finding a comfortable posture and allowing yourself to breathe naturally as we practice a bit of inquiry. As we sit, I'll offer several questions. Just allow answers to to arise organically. No need to search for an answer. So the first question is, in a word, what do I live for? In a word, what do I live for? What is my intention? What is my intention? What will I do next? What will I do next? Holding these responses lightly in your heart, you might open your eyes, remaining present.
So I really like these repeated question exercises. I find they help define and refine what is meaningful to me. And in a sense, it, it does an end around of the discursive and ruminative thoughts that distract me, move me away from clarifying vision and determining what to do next. I like the gentleness of these questions. They're not too demanding. It's really an iterative process that is more intended to bring us closer to what's meaningful as opposed to find the one true answer. So I'd like to share a brief reading from author Pema Chodron and her book, Comfortable with Uncertainty. It's called Staying in the Middle. Openness doesn't come from resisting our fears, but from getting to know them well. We can't cultivate fearlessness without compassionate inquiry into the workings of ego. So we ask ourselves, what happens when I feel I can't handle what's going on? What are the stories I tell myself? What repels me and what attracts me? Where do I look for strength? And in what place do I place my trust? The first thing that takes place in meditation, according to children, is that we start to see what's happening. She writes, even though we still run away and we still indulge, we see what we're doing clearly. We acknowledge our aversions and our cravings. We become familiar with the strategies and beliefs we use to fortify a cocoon. With mindfulness as our method, we start to get curious about what's going on. For quite a long time, we just see it clearly. To the degree that we're willing to see our indulging and our repressing clearly, they begin to wear themselves out. Wearing out is not exactly the same as going away. Instead, a wider, more generous, more enlightened perspective arises. How we stay in the middle and begin indulging and repressing is by acknowledging whatever arises without judgment, letting the thoughts simply dissolve, and then going back to the openness of this very moment. That's what we're doing in meditation. Up come all these thoughts, but rather than squelch them or obsess with them, we acknowledge them and let them go. Then we come back to just being here. After a while, that's how we relate with hope and fear in our daily lives. Out of nowhere, we stop struggling and relax. We see our storyline, drop it, and come back to the freshness of the present moment. So one interesting side effect of experimenting with these practices for me is an improved clarity for when I actually have no idea what I'm doing. And the wonderful thing about that is it somehow transforms my perceived shortcomings into comedy. 
I'm thinking of home improvement projects here, not my area of expertise, and all it takes is a puzzled look from my wife to know that it's time to call a contractor and bring in a professional. So I'm finding that I've become a bit better at stopping when I truly have no idea what I'm doing. And at the same time, I have the courage and conviction to take risks, even that, even if that little voice in my head isn't quite so sure yet. I'm able to make the distinction and choose my next step instead of being driven by habit and second-guessing. Just this month, I embark on the adventure of teaching mindfulness to over 110 10th graders. I've practiced the skills and strategies to connect over and over. I've trained and studied curriculums. But I know that some days will be better than others, and I'm sure I'll hear, you have no idea what you're doing. <laughs> Maybe even from a student. So I thought I'd close with a poem by Dana Fields. Sorry, Dana Falls. It's called Choosing Life. The downward spiral starts. Self-doubt and darkness vie for center stage, while I, the passive drowning one, waiting for my demise. Just as I sink beneath the waves of my despair, a thought arises. Why go there? I've made this trip a thousand times, and it leads nowhere. I'm choosing life. The darkness lifts just a little. I'm choosing life. The downward spiral slows then stops. I'm lifted up and buoyant now, not shrinking from the truth. Okay, I'm not perfect, and reality certainly doesn't look like what I'd choose. And maybe that's the only point, to ride the spirals down and up and make the choice for life.